There's an outline in your bulletin if you like to follow along with where we're headed this morning. This summer we've been talking about parables, including this morning we have three parables left. The two that we're going to look at over the next couple weeks I think are my two favorites. And the one that we're looking at this morning is, to me, one of the most interesting parables. And if you just, you open your Bible and you find Matthew 13, I just want you to sort of see the roadmap of what we're going to look at and what we're going to read. We're going to start in verse 24, Matthew 13, 24. We're going to go all the way to verse 43. And along the way, we're going to read a parable. Jesus is going to share a parable. And then we're going to read two parables that we've already talked about on Sunday morning, so they should sound familiar, and we're not going to focus on those this morning. We're just going to read them because they're in the middle of the passage, and we're going to move on. Then there's a couple of verses that explain why Jesus taught in parables, and then, this is sort of the interesting part, Jesus explains the parable. And it's bizarre to me that more than any of the other parables that Jesus taught, any of the other parables you'll find in the New Testament, as I listen to Christians talk and I read commentaries and I look at different books, people get this parable wrong more than any other parable. And it's bizarre to me because Jesus told us exactly what it means. Like you don't have to wonder what does this mean or what does that mean. He spells it out in exact detail. And I'll be honest with you, many of the commentaries that I've studied In this series on parables, I've gotten them out every week and I've read through them and I've enjoyed them and I've benefited from them and I've gleaned insights and ideas from them. I open them up to this parable and they just sort of go off on a bizarre left-hand turn and I think, I don't even think you read the explanation. Like you read the parable and then you just made something up that doesn't even fit. And so we're going to try not to do that this morning. By now you know that parables are stories taken from real life from which moral or spiritual truths are drawn. And one of the things I've told you each and every week is that parables are not allegories. And what I mean by that is you don't have to look at a parable and try to decode every object or person or symbol and come up with some secretive interpretation that no one would have ever understood if they didn't have your magic, you know, interpretation grid. The exception to that is Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, there are two parables that Jesus teaches, and then he gives the explanation to the parable. And so that's that's on your sheet. Matthew 13 contains two parables that Jesus interpreted for his disciples. And again, not to beat a dead horse, but if Jesus says this is what it means, you just need to leave it at that. That's what it means. You don't need to go beyond that. You don't need to ignore that. You just need to listen to Jesus for the meaning. I also want you to see this. We're just going to talk about this briefly. In Matthew 13, we're explicitly told why Jesus taught in parables. So there's lots of parables in Matthew 13, several parables. The first one that's lengthy and that Jesus explains is the parable of the sower, or sometimes we call it the parable of the soils. And there's the parable, and then there's some explanation about why he taught in parables, and then an explanation. You see the same pattern later in the chapter, the the passage, the verses we're looking at this morning, where Jesus teaches a parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and then there's some interlude, and then he comes back with an explanation. Here's what's fascinating to me. You can look these passages up later on your own. In the first part of Matthew 13, when Matthew gives us this little insert, and he says, this is why Jesus taught in parables. He says it was to fulfill Isaiah 6. 
And if you go back and look at Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6 is God speaking to the prophet Isaiah and he says to him, no one is going to listen to you or understand what you're teaching. Like, I'm sending you, Isaiah, out to preach and no one is going to get it. And Matthew says Jesus taught him parables to fulfill that, meaning Jesus is teaching in parables so that some people don't get it. And then you keep reading in Matthew 13. Later in the chapter, the verses we're going to look at this morning, and Matthew gives us another little insert, and he says, why did Jesus teach him parables? Well, this time he quotes Psalm 78. You go back and look at Psalm 78. The whole point of Psalm 78, especially the first part, is the psalmist saying, we are going to teach the next generation so that they know the truth about God. We don't want them to be ignorant about the truth of God. And Matthew's saying he's teaching in parables in fulfillment of this chapter, of this verse, of this passage, so that people will get it. And look, those are the two sides of the parable coin. And you've got to hang on to both of them. You can't just sort of reduce this down and say, well, Jesus taught in parables just to make it easy for people to understand, or as we've said multiple times, to put the cookies on the lowest shelf, to reduce it to the lowest common denominator. No. Matthew's telling you right here in this chapter, one of the reasons he teaches in parables, we'll see this morning, is so that people will get it and they won't be ignorant as to the truth. And at the same time, one of the reasons he taught in parables was that some people wouldn't get it and they wouldn't understand. And Matthew just holds both of those ideas together right here in the same chapter. The two parables, the two long parables in Matthew 13 are told for a specific reason. And again, this is on your notes. Jesus told the parables in Matthew 13 to explain why the coming of his kingdom did not result in a cataclysmic separation of all people. He's telling these parables to help his disciples understand why, even though his kingdom had come and he was the king, why there wasn't this instant and dramatic cataclysmic separation of all people. And look, in the Jewish mind, that's exactly what they were waiting for. They were looking for a Messiah. They were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a king. And they believed when he shows up, there's going to be this dramatic separation. It's going to be the ins and the outs, the haves and the have-nots, those who are with God and those who are against God. And they had no category for people rejecting the Messiah and living to tell about it. That's why James and John, you remember when they're walking around with Jesus and they go to a particular village and nobody wants anything to do with Jesus? As soon as they walk out, what did James and John say? Do you want us to call down the fire or do you want to call down the fire? Like we know the fire is coming. Blow these people up. It's time for a separation. And Jesus kind of looks at these guys and lovingly in a Jesus way says, you don't know what you're talking about. You and I know that a day is coming when Christ returns and there is going to be a cataclysmic, final, dramatic judgment and separation of all people. But what the disciples are struggling to understand is how is it that the Messiah has come and this big final separation hasn't already taken place? And Jesus uses these parables to help them make sense of it. And so in the first parable, we've already looked at this parable a few weeks back. He says, look, it's like a sower going out to sow seed. And some of it falls on the path and some of it falls among the thorns and some of it falls among the weeds and some of it falls on good soil. And he's saying there's going to be different responses to the Messiah and that's what you should expect. 
And he's sort of driving at the same idea here later in Matthew 13 of how this separation is going to happen, when it's going to happen, and why it isn't happening immediately. So here's the big idea. Really simple. God permits the righteous and the wicked to coexist in the world until the end of the age. In his wisdom, in his sovereignty, in deciding how he's going to unfold redemption in this world, God's plan is that the righteous and the wicked are going to coexist in the world and that both of those groups are going to exist all the way up until the end of the age. Now, you may read that big idea and you may say, sounds boring to me. Like, I don't know, just duh, there's good people, there's bad people, there's saved people, there's lost people. But I hope as we track through this passage, it's going to end up sounding like really, really good news to you. That in God's plan, the wicked and the righteous are coexisting in this age, in this earth, in this period in which we live. And the division is coming, the separation is coming, but for now, they exist together. So, look at the text and let's just read it. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Word of God says this. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and he sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray.
Father, we believe this is your word. We believe that it's true. We believe that it has the power to divide us to the core of who we are, to expose us, to convict us, to give us life. Father, we pray for ears to hear your word this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I just want to start making sure we're tracking with what's going on in this parable. So on your notes at the top on the, on the second page or the back page, I just listed out all the sort of one-to-ones that Jesus draws in this parable, and I'll put them up on the screen as well. Okay, I know this is simple. I know we just read it. I know you could go back and fill the blanks in. I just, for the sake of clarity and everyone being on the same page, let's make sure we're tracking. The sower is the son of man. The field is the world. And this is the point where everybody goes off the tracks. For some reason, all sorts of smart people, brilliant people, good Bible scholars, they read the parable and they walk away and they say, okay, the field is the church. That's not what Jesus said. If he had wanted to say the field is the church, he could have said the field is the church. He's giving the interpretation to his own parable and Jesus says the field is the world. So all all sorts of people, they go off the rails here and they say, look, the field is the church and you're going to have unbelievers and believers in the church. And people use this to justify all sorts of crazy things. People use this, I've heard people use it to justify infant baptism. You should just baptize everybody, and then as people grow up, then we find out who's weeds, who's tares, and they go one way or the other. So you just, you baptize them all. That's not what Jesus is saying here. I've heard people use this parable to justify letting sin go unchecked in their church. Just let it happen. It's not your business to separate the weeds and the tares. That's God's business. And Jesus himself said there will be weeds and there will be tares and they're both going to grow up. He did say that, but he didn't say there's going to be both in the church. He said there's going to be both in the world. I've heard people justify all sorts of crazy things, things like We're not even going to have membership at our church because it's not even our place to say who's in and who's out. That's God's place, and we're going to have wheat and tares, and so we're just going to let people come, but we're not going to have any sort of formal membership because God's going to sort that out in the end. Well, it's a nice idea. It's just not biblical. It's so simple. The sower is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed, sons of the kingdom. The weeds, sons of the evil one. We're talking about believers and unbelievers, lost and saved. The enemy is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. When you get everything in its place and when you find a place for everything, it's really not a complicated parable. And all I want to do is walk through and point out some obvious truths that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. Remember, they're confused. How is it that the Messiah could be here and this cataclysmic judgment and separation and distinction and the sheep and the goats and the weed and tares, how, how is it that this hasn't happened yet? And Jesus is explaining that to them. So I want you to see a few ideas from the parable. Number one, we should expect Satan to attack. God's people, all people, Satan is going to attack. Verse 39 says this, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And you go back up and you read in verse 25 that while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and he sowed weeds among the wheat and he went away. And Jesus says, this is the devil. I know that popular media makes him out to be a joke. 
Maybe you picture a guy in a red spandex suit with a tail, pitchfork. Maybe you think of some goofy movie where one of the main characters turns out to be the devil and it's some kind of, you know, dopey horror movie. I understand popular media takes something that the Bible treats very seriously and just dumbs it down for our entertainment. But I want you to understand that the Bible is clear. Satan is going to attack God's people. He's going to attack people. He hates God. He's God's enemy. And he hates anything that would bring honor and glory and praise to God. He's against all of it. The Bible says he prowls around the devil like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. If I told you during our announcement time that the circus just happened to be driving down university and they broke down out front and the lions got out, it would change the way you leave the building. Or didn't. You'd be on alert. You'd be cautious. You'd be aware. And yet so many of us go through our daily lives as if it's just our daily lives as if there's not a battle raging for your soul. If you're a husband and you want to set out to lead your family and love your wife, you better be ready for attack. You don't have to wonder if it's going to happen or not. It's going to happen. Wives, if you want to love your husband and respect your husband like Scripture calls you to, you better be ready because you're going to be attacked. Guaranteed. If you sit in this room on Sunday morning and you think about people in your workplace or your school place or wherever or your family that need to know Jesus and there's a burden in your heart to share the truth of the gospel with them, that's fantastic and I hope you do it, but you better be ready for attack. Satan won't take that lying down. He won't take it lightly. If you come to this place on Sunday mornings or Wednesdays or whatever and you say, I want this to be the best church it can be. I want to welcome people here. I want to serve people here. I want to grow here. All of those things are great, but you better be ready for attack. You have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. Somebody sent me a clip of a pastor He was talking about sin in our lives, and he was talking about how we make so many excuses for why we can't stop sinning. We just keep doing it. Maybe we say we're addicted to this, or we're just, you know, we can't help but do this, or we're like Adam and Eve. Maybe we blame our spouse, or maybe we blame the devil, or whoever, whoever. And the pastor just made the point, look, if I could just sort of pull back the curtain and show you the war that's taking place behind the scenes and show you that you have an enemy who wants to devour you, it would change the way you get on the internet. And it would change the way that you talk to people. And it would change the way you think about sin in your life like it's no big deal at all. This parable reminds you that you have an enemy who wants your worst. He wants to destroy you. He wants to ruin your family. He wants to ruin your career. He wants to make you as miserable as possible. He's going to attack. Number two and three, they go together. We should not expect the church to take over the world. And we should not expect the world to take over the church. Pretty simple. 
if you want to identify anything in this parable as the church, don't say the field is the church. Say the good seed is the church. The sons of the kingdom. That's the church. And Jesus makes it pretty clear that the church is not going to take over the world and the world is not going to take over the church. So let's just pause for a quick vocabulary lesson. On the front of your outline, it says the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in what we just read out of the translation I use, the ESV, never did we read the word tares. So let's just put a few words up and make sure we're all on the same page. The old King James word is tares. Okay? In most modern translations, you'll find the word weeds, just sort of a generic word for weeds. The Greek word is zazanion, if you're interested in that sort of thing. And the Latin term for the actual genus or species or whatever you want to call it, a plant that we're talking about, is lolium temelentum. And if you're an everyday Joe like me, you don't care about any of that stuff, you just want to know, it's called darnell. That's the poor man's name for the plant that we're talking about. In fact, if you have an ESV Bible, you see a footnote down at the bottom, and it says probably what he's talking about is darnell. It's a wheat-like weed. And so over here on the right, you see darnell on the left and wheat on the right. You see it up close. You see it at full maturity. What you don't see is that when these two plants are growing up, they look identical. You can't tell a difference. It just looks like a green shoot coming up out of the ground. And you just, you don't know. Is it the fake stuff or is it the real stuff? And you look at the two and you say, well, does it really matter one way or the other? It does matter. Wheat you can eat. Darnell is a poisonous narcotic. You don't want to eat it. In modern times, we have farming equipment. Humans can make amazing things. We have farming equipment that can actually, in the harvest process, separate out the tares from the wheat. You don't have to worry about it. In the ancient world, you had to worry about it because you, you go out and you scatter your seed and you see it start to grow up and you get excited and you say, man, it looks like it's going to be a great harvest this year. And they, it just looks like a field of wheat. And then it grows up. And when it buds out and when it matures, you realize... I haven't even been growing wheat. I've been growing Darnell. I've been growing the wrong thing. And in the parable, the farmer says, look, you can't go through the field and yank this and that and the other. They're both going to grow up and we'll sort it all out at the harvest. The interpretation from Jesus could not be more clear. He says the wheat, the good seed, is the sons of the kingdom. It's God's people. And the tares or the, the weeds or the darnell that the enemy sowed, those are sons of the evil one. And they're both going to grow up and they're both going to be around until the end of the age and then it all gets sorted out at the end. And what he's saying is sometimes we forget one of these two truths. As a Christian, you can't have this unrealistic expectation that the church is just going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and eventually take over the whole world and we're going to have you know, the most godly presidents and governors and teachers and everything's going to be the greatest and we just expect this to keep going and going. That's not realistic. It's not going to happen. Jesus says in the world you're going to have both and they're going to both grow up and they're, they're going to be there. You say, well, should I just be pessimistic then? Just say, it sounds like the world's going to hell in a handbasket? I don't think so. I know that lately you turn on the news and that's what you feel like. And you think, oh my goodness, how much worse could things get? Where are we going next as a society if this is where we're at now? But in this parable, Jesus says, the wheat is going to grow. 
The Darnell's not going to take over the whole field. It's going to keep growing. And right here in the middle, not to focus on it, but just to point out, Jesus says in verse 31, look, my kingdom's going to grow. It's like a tiny little mustard seed, and it's going to grow into a big plant. Rest assured, it's not going anywhere. I am building a church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I realize that churches will fall away. They'll stop putting up with sound doctrine and they'll chase after false doctrine. But not all churches are going to do that. So don't be a negative Nancy. Don't act like everything's as bad as it could be. God's people are going to be around and his kingdom's going to grow. Jesus says it's like a little bit of leaven. It's just, it's small. It seems insignificant right now. It's just me and this handful of knucklehead disciples, but it's going to grow and it's going to grow and it's going to grow, and it's going to spread throughout the entire world. So we hold both of these things in tension. We don't expect the church to take over the world. We don't expect the world to take over the church. And just like the disciples who wrestled with that, we just live in that sort of awkward tension. Where on the one hand, you're going to keep turning on the news, and it is going to go from bad to worse. There's going to be a downhill progression. And at the same time, God's church is going to be just fine. Even if this political leader or that political leader or this establishment or this organization falls away, God's people are going to be just fine. The wheat and the weeds are both going to grow up all the way until the end to the harvest, the end of the age, and then the separation is going to take place. Number four, and this is where we get really serious. The wicked will eventually be separated out, judged, and destroyed. Verse 40, 41, and 42. This is Jesus' explanation. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I know that fire and brimstone preaching is not in vogue, maybe like it once was. I know that that's not something you hear a lot on Sunday morning. If you've been here long, you know that's not something that I do a whole lot of. But I also don't think we can miss this. Jesus saying there is going to be a separation. And for those who prove to be weeds, the Darnell, it's going to end badly. You can take this how you want to. You can take it figuratively. You can take it literally. We can argue about it. But what Jesus is saying undeniably is that there will be a clear distinction made. And it doesn't end good, it doesn't end well for the weeds in the parable, and it won't end well for the sons of the evil one at the end. One thing I also know is this. It's impossible to scare someone into heaven. There's a lot of churches and Christians that think you can just scare someone into being a follower of Jesus. You can scare someone You can scare someone into praying a prayer. You can scare someone into repeating some sort of magical formula that promises them they'll get to heaven someday. But you can't scare someone into loving Jesus. 
There's a world of difference between the person who's fearful of hell and their conscience is heavy and the person who loves Jesus more than anything else on this earth. And that's why if you just look in your Bible, Matthew 13, look at the very next two parables Jesus tells. He just said some really serious stuff about hell. There's going to be a separation. There's going to be a distinction. It's going to end badly for the sons of the evil one. We may be tempted to say, well, let's preach hellfire and brimstone and scare people into the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is what it's like to be part of my kingdom. It's like a treasure that's hidden in a field, and when you find it, you cover it up, and in your joy, you sell everything you have to buy that field. It's like a a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding the one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. These are the parables Ron taught on a few weeks back. Talking about the idea that the Christian, the son of the kingdom, the daughter of the kingdom, has at the center of their heart and their lives and their affections, Jesus. Not a fear of hell, and I don't want to go to hell when I die, but a love for Jesus. In this parable, we let the word say what it says. The wicked will be separated and judged and destroyed. And I, I just want to draw your attention to one last thought. Look in the text. Look at verse 41. It says, The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. You know, it's easy when you read a verse like that to think about the worst person you know and put them into that, that verse the lawbreaker. I wonder how many of us, though, have allowed something other than God to take God's place in our life. I wonder how many of us have been guilty of breaking the ninth commandment, don't lie. I wonder how many of us have been guilty of breaking God's third commandment of the Ten Commandments, where he says, use God's name with respect and don't ever take it in vain. I wonder how many of us have ever been guilty of taking anything that wasn't ours to rightfully take. Commandment 8. I wonder how many of us have been guilty of being angry with our brother and our heart. If you have, Jesus says that you broke the sixth commandment. And I wonder how many of us have found ourselves wishing that we were married to someone we're not married to. Seventh commandment. I mean, we could just go through all ten, but I think you get the point. We just so easily skip over that verse where he says, in the end, he's going to gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And I think it's worth stopping and recognizing he's talking about me and you. Lawbreakers. People who have received God's law and snubbed our nose at it. And defied it. And we just so naturally think of the worst person we know and we put them into that verse and we so easily slide into verse 43 where it says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The last idea is this. The righteous will enjoy eternity with the father. You can mark it down, fill it in, celebrate it. But before you get too excited, you need to ask yourself the question, how does one find themselves moved from the category of lawbreaker where we all rightfully belong, moved into the category of the righteous? 
How do you end up on this side of the judgment? How do you avoid being plucked out of the kingdom and sent to this fiery end? And how do you find yourself counted as one of the righteous and finding a place with the Father for all eternity? I think it goes back to something we read in Galatians chapter 3. Look what Galatians 3 says. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. If you think you're going to slide out of verse 41 and into verse 43 on the basis of your own obedience, you've got to wrestle with this verse. And I can just tell you right now, you're going to lose that wrestling match. No one's going to be justified. No one's going to be counted righteous. That's what justified means, to be counted righteous. No one will be counted righteous by works of the law. It won't happen. So how do you get from verse 41 into verse 43? Go back and think about the big idea with me, where we started. God permits the righteous and the wicked to coexist in the world until the end of the age. Here's the amazing part about what Jesus is saying. In his wisdom and in his sovereignty and in his grace and in his mercy, the Father has devised a plan. And the plan involves in this age, in this life, in this world, the righteous and the wicked living side by side. His plan was not to enter into creation and to instantly and immediately destroy all lawbreakers. And thank God that wasn't the plan. Because you realize if that was the plan, if the Jews got what they were wanting, what they were looking for, what they were hoping for, what they were even praying for, all of us would be cut off. All lawbreakers and all causes of sin. That's all of us. Gone. In an instant. And the Jews were right in the sense that it would be right for God to do that. They were wrong in the sense to think that somehow they would have escaped it. But God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty and his grace devised a plan, not where he would instantly and immediately destroy his enemies, but where he would save them. And he would enter creation alongside them. As we sang a minute ago, he would be born of dust. The creator taking the form of the creature to live among us, to obey the law that we have not obeyed, And to die on the cross taking our punishment. To take the curse of the law that should have fallen on us. And not only that, but God then sends his spirit to open our eyes to the truth. To give us hearts of flesh when we're stuck with hearts of stone. To bring us to life when we're spiritually dead. Our response is summarized in Galatians chapter 2. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. When you look at this parable, the difference between verse 41 and verse 43 is not how good can you be on some sliding scale of morality. The difference between all lawbreakers and the righteous are those who trust in Jesus Christ. Those who call their sin, sin, acknowledge it for what it is, turn from it, and trust in the finished, perfect, complete work of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's the challenge for you today. Some of you have done that. Some of you have never done that. 
But we've prayed for ears to hear what Jesus is saying. And what he's saying is, righteousness is found in me. It's not found in you, in your goodness. Look to me, trust in me, and rest in me. I'm going to ask you to bow and we're going to pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for Jesus who teaches us truth. We're grateful for your spirit that applies it to our hearts. Father, we pray for those in the room who are far from you. Father, we pray that you would show them their sin, that they would see it for what it is. Father, you say in the scriptures, Jesus himself says that the job of the spirit is to convict the world concerning sin. And so we pray for that conviction this morning. Father, we pray for eyes to see the truth that there will be a separation, that life goes on year after year, decade after decade, but that a separation is coming, a a cataclysm is coming, a judgment is coming. Father, and on that day, we want to be found trusting in Christ, not in ourselves. Father, I pray for those who are in the room who have confidence in their own ability to be righteous before you. And I pray that they would run from that and that they would run to the cross. Father, be honored as we sing, as we celebrate what you've done for us through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.